Well, good morning. Welcome to Directional Bible Ministries, a teaching ministry that is called to encourage, disciple, and challenge the people of God. Uh, today is September the 20th, and we are continuing our study through the book of Acts. We have made our way down into Acts chapter number 19. Um, the last time that we were together, uh, we finished up uh, chapter number 28. I mean, chapter number 18. Uh, chapter number 18. So we're going to, we broke into chapter number 19 Tuesday. Hey, Zeke. How you doing, brother? Good to see you. Hey, Otis. God bless you. Um, so today we're going to pick up in chapter number 19, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 35. This will be session uh, number <clears throat> number 32. So session number 32 in our study. So Acts chapter 19, verse number 1, and as you can see here, I have my notes here in front of you. Um, I do take these notes, and I put them on my, on my blog, uh, for those of you that are interested in them. And then, of course, I also do an audio recording of this to SoundCloud, and I do a video recording of this to YouTube, so... Um, Plenty of places where you can access it. So, Acts chapter number 19, verse number 1. Let's go ahead and open up a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, we love you. Do ask that you go before us today. You bless the reading of your word. Father, open our eyes to see, ears to hear, our hearts to understand the things that you have for us. Lord, uh, thank you for your goodness. Be with our nation. Be with everything that's going on around us. Be with our churches. Be with our pulpits, Lord. Father, may truth be spoken more now than ever in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Acts chapter number 19, verse number 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Uh, so we find here Paul is on his way to, to Ephesus. He runs into 12 men who were disciples of John the Baptist. We know that there's 12 because down in verse number 7 it says, and all the men were about 12. So there's 12 of these guys. And it is apparent from the context that these men, despite the fact that Pentecost was 20 years prior, they had no idea about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that had happened in Acts chapter number 2. Uh, matter of fact, it appears they had absolutely no idea in regards to Jesus, uh, who he was. Uh, and, and that's not hard to believe. I mean, bear in mind, we're not living in a time of Facebook and Twitter and things like that. Um, news traveled very slowly. Um, so it makes it obvious that these, these are Jews that Paul is dealing with here. Uh, and they were under the baptism of John, under the baptism of John the Baptist. Um, then notice in verse number three, and he said unto them, unto what then were ye baptized? And they said unto John's baptism. So that's all they knew. What's interesting to me is that Paul realized that they had received some kind of baptism, but he just wanted to clarify. And it seems from the text that he knew the answer before he even asked it based on their behavior. Um, and then, of course, by acknowledging that they were under John's baptism, 
what that means is they had accepted the message of John, his message of repentance that he preached. And remember Matthew, when he appeared, he, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, he preached a message of repentance and preparation for the coming kingdom that was that he preached was at hand. And they accepted that message. And the way that they showed that they accepted that message is that they were baptized physically by John, but they had not apparently received the spiritual baptism that had happened at Pentecost. So they no doubt had repented. They had no doubt had been baptized, but that, but, and were looking for the Messiah, but they didn't know who he, who he was. They didn't know about Pentecost. They didn't know all of these things. Um, and understand, it was not the same baptism that we practice today. You know, today in the church, we practice baptism based upon the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Um, the baptism that they practiced, that John the Baptist uh, practiced, that the apostles practiced, was the baptism of repentance. Because bear in mind, I mean, they were baptizing long before the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Um, so it's not the same baptism that we practice today in the body of Christ. Good morning, Scott. God bless you, brother. Um, then notice in verse number four, then said Paul, John barely baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto people that they should believe on him that should come after him, that is on Christ, Jesus. And when they heard this, Okay, when they heard this, obviously this was news to them. Um, it was news that the one that should come was the Christ, and they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all of them were about twelve. Now, I have been guilty for years of overthinking these verses and arriving at a bad interpretation. Um, the bottom line is that these guys had accepted the teaching of John. I mean, that's what the text says. I mean, they had accepted the teaching of John um, that the Messiah was going to come, but they apparently did not know that Jesus was that promised Messiah. So Paul took the time to explain that to them. They needed to understand that Jesus was that promised Messiah, so that they, they then could receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit that was poured out in Acts chapter number 2 as prophesied by Joel as a sign. Um, and this happened when Paul laid hands on them, just like Peter and John did back in Acts chapter number 8 uh, with the kingdom believers in Samaria, with Philip. These 12 disciples of John just received the long overdue gift of the Holy Spirit that was promised to believing Israel in the book of Joel and in the Gospels and in the early part of the book of Acts who believed that Jesus was their Christ. Now, I mean, that's what the text clearly says. I mean, anything else is going to have to be worked into the text, or um, at least to me. I mean, the text clearly indicates here that Paul was not preaching the grace gospel to these 12 men. Um, they were kingdom believers. They stayed kingdom believers, as there is no mention in the text of them trusting in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. 
Um, they were simply learning that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that he was the Messiah. He, they believed that he was the king and the kingdom was being offered. And they accepted that and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, just like the, the Pentecost believers were. So these were kingdom saints and they would receive the baptism with the Holy Ghost after they had repented and were baptized in the name of Jesus. I mean, exactly what happened in Acts 2.38 when, when Peter explained to them who Jesus was. I mean, literally, this is happening here in a micro. <laughs> I mean, and he told them what had happened. Jesus was the king. He was offering the kingdom. And they were cut to the heart, and they said, What shall we do? And he said, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Ghost. And that's exactly what happened here. And again, this was a time of overlap in the kingdom offer in the beginning of the age of grace. I personally, based on my study, um, you know, mo most mid-Acts dispensationalists will say that, and I agree, that this time of overlap officially ended after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, when it was no longer feasible that the Messiah was going to come and occupy that temple, set himself up as king, and bring in the kingdom, bring in the millennial reign of Christ. I mean, that was, I think 70 AD was a point of no return. Uh, so there was a time of overlap here, and that time of overlap is, I think, what divides most um, dispensationalists, but more so what I'm talking about here is mid-axe dispensationalists. There's just disagreements as to when and how, but we do know that there was a time of overlap, there was a period in which the kingdom was being preached simultaneously with the gospel of grace, and that Paul was, while the apostles, the twelve, were preaching only the kingdom gospel, that's all they ever preached. Matter of fact, they did not fully understand the grace gospel. Peter pointed that out in his epistle. Paul preaching things that are hard to understand. Paul, on the other hand, was both a kingdom believer and a grace believer, and he actually preached both. And I believe he preached both all the way up to Acts 28. Um, and I say that, um, and again, I, I'm learning just like you're learning, um, and I have the right to change my mind tomorrow. But in Acts 28, the very end of the book, um, Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house, received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus. Um, I believe that Paul preached both uh, all the way up until, uh, I believe, once he came into Rome and the he wrote the prison epistles, um, I believe at that point he had received more revelation and, you know, Jerusalem fell and it was purely a grace gospel thereafter. But again, I mean, I, I love you if you disagree with me, that's fine. Uh, but that's where I've kind of worked myself there um, in my study. So let me back up here. Okay, so Paul laid hands on him. Uh, then we came in down into um, 
where do we get here? Peter and John, Acts 8, uh, clearly indicates grace gospel. These 12 men, they were grace believers. Um, this I pointed this out in the text here. Uh, notice, finally, another proof that I noticed that it says that the Holy Spirit came on them, not in them. Um, on them was the way the Holy Spirit moved in the Old Testament. Uh, the newness of what God was going to do under the new covenant was in. Um, and you've studied that, the epi, the in, and the para experience, I'm, I'm sure. Um, in being in, epi being upon, para being beside. Uh, that uh, in experience was something that came after the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit began to dwell in us. Again, a time of overlap. Now notice in verse 8, And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Um, <laughs> Scott made a comment. He still believes the kingdom of God is different from the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. I mean, that's a neat study. Um, you either are going to land where Scott is, where you believe that they're two different things. Um, kingdom of God referring to, you know, everything kingdom of heaven referring to, you know, the reign of God, you know, I mean, and some people will say, no, they're referring to this, to the same things. I believe they're referring to the same thing uh, because when I compare the language of the apostles and the gospels, they use the words interchangeably. But, you know, I mean, uh, we all got to study to show ourselves approved, right? Workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, and again, we're dividing truth from truth, not truth from error. Um, so he went into the synagogue and he spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading concerning the kingdom of God. Now remember that Paul had already been to Ephesus back in chapter number eighteen. You remember he was there and he left them. He entered in the synagogue. He reasoned with the Jews. They desired they desired for him to tarry longer, but he consented not. And we found out that he was he was under a lot of pressure to get down to Jerusalem for the feast before returning to Antioch. Um, and that's where the Nazarite vow speculation comes in, that maybe Paul had um, committed to a Nazarite vow and he needed to make the sacrifice to culminate that vow at the feast in Jerusalem. Um, again, um, um, so now he's back down in Ephesus, and he's here for three months, and he's still disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now again, this cannot be taught today. The, king, the, the kingdom gospel cannot be taught today correctly. There is no kingdom offer on the table for the body of Christ. The kingdom offer was for the Jews. And I put up a couple of studies for you guys to look at. Last time I, I talked about, are we living under the new covenant? Um, 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 you know, are we in the kingdom? We're not in the kingdom. We're not in the spiritual kingdom. We're not almost there, not yet. Whatever other kind of lingo uh, modern day dispensationalists want to use, almost not yet. We're not in a spiritual kingdom. We're not in a physical kingdom because the kingdom has nothing to do with the body of Christ because we are not under the covenant. We are not God's covenant people. Um, God's covenants are with the Jews, always have and forever will be. 
The old covenant, the new covenant has nothing to do with you and me. Uh, it's all for the Jewish people. And again, that's, that's covenant theology weaving its way into evangelicalism. It's replacement theology, though they will not acknowledge that. When you say the church was born in Acts chapter number two, you bit in the apple of replacement theology, period. That's what you're getting. What you're saying is that Jesus came, he offered the kingdom in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was rejected by his crucifixion. And so he brought a spiritual kingdom in Acts chapter number two with the birth of the body of Christ. That's, that's what you're saying. You know, I sat down and talked to a liberty professor one day, systematic theology, and yeah, I mean, that's exactly what we're saying. And that's what I taught for years. But when you start rightly dividing the word of the truth and you realize there's promises that are made to the Jew that have nothing to do with the Gentile, there's promises made to the Gentile that have nothing to do with the Jew, it starts to make sense. Uh, last time we were together, we talked about how this is what should have happened. This is what should have happened. You know, I mean, God pulls Abraham out from the Gentiles. He makes a promise to Abraham. You know, and, and you come along and those promises have to do with David and his descendant who would sit upon the throne. Um, restoration of the kingdom. John the Baptist comes preaching that message. Jesus and the 12 come preaching that same message. He's crucified. Now, the average dispensationalist will say, well, there you go. The kingdom offer was rejected right there. No, the kingdom offer couldn't have been made there. Because a testament is not in effect until after the death of the testator. That's Hebrews chapter number 9. The offer could not have been made prior to the death, burial, and the, the, the death, burial, the, the death, burial, and the resurrection. Um, and Jesus rose from the dead. Peter was given the keys to offer the kingdom legitimately, the first bona fide offer to the nation of Israel. And had Israel accepted that offer, it, they would have went into the time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week. Antichrist, whole nine yards. And that's why the Hebrew epistles deal so much. Hebrews through Revelation deal with tribulation because they believe that was what was next. And it was what was supposed to have been next. But there was no nat national repentance. And it would have culminated with the second coming of Jesus and the establishment of the thousand-year reign, the fulfillment of all these promises back here. That's what would have happened. And then we would have went into eternity. That's what could have, would have, should have happened, but didn't happen. Okay? Um... And then, of course, I have another chart here that, that shows what did happen. You know, I mean, it shows very clearly that, you know, I, the, the offer was rejected. And as a result of that offer being rejected, Israel, the fall of Israel, Israel begins to diminish. And you and I are living in the, in the time of grace, Right now, we're living in the body of Christ. We are living in the mystery that was revealed to the Apostle Paul, only to the Apostle Paul. And this time period will end with the rapture of the church, and then God will again be focused back on the nation of Israel. That's what it is.
That's what it is. So, again, this cannot be taught today, not even to the Jews, because the offer is no longer on the table. And notice verse number nine. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of Tyrannus. As usual, some did not believe. These were Jews. So Paul had to leave the synagogue, and he separated the ones that did believe, and they began, they, and he still taught them daily in the school of one Ty, of, of Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So for a, over a period of two years, Paul taught the word of the Lord to both Jews and Greeks. Again, it's difficult to determine what Paul preached to whom and when, kingdom or grace. I mean, again, we're in that time of overlap. We don't know. I mean, the only thing we can do is look at the personal pronouns and what he's saying and who he's saying it to, but we know that we're in, we're in a period of overlap. Um, so we're unsure, but I can tell you one thing. We're not in a period of overlap today. No one should be preaching repentance and baptism for salvation today. Nobody. Okay? Um, so again, the word Helene refers to non-Jews. Um, so the assumption would be that Paul would have been preaching the kingdom gospel to the Jews and maybe the grace gospel to the Gentiles. But again, as we look through this chapter, it seems that he only taught the kingdom gospel. And Randy White, who I, I really enjoy his teaching, he pointed out a few things. First, he says clearly that he was teaching the kingdom of God. I mean, verse number eight says very clearly he was teaching the kingdom of God. Now, again, you know, Scott mentioned kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Are they the same thing? Um, some believe they are. Some believe they're not. But nowhere do we see the message changing. It would require the assumption on our part to assume otherwise. So he's clearly teaching the kingdom of God, and we don't see that message changing here to the Ephesians. Uh, second, he is performing special miracle miracles, which is always associated with the kingdom and not the grace gospel. Uh, he's, he's, he's performing miracles. Um, where does it say? It says that he was performing uh, special, special miracles um, by his hand. Uh, and these special, these miracles were uh, a sign of the kingdom. Um, it's it's there somewhere. He's preferring these these special these special miracles. He's casting out demons. I mean, there's you know there's handkerchiefs involved with healings. Uh, again, that's associated with the kingdom gospel, not the grace gospel. The third thing is those who responded. Notice what they did. They confessed and showed their deeds. So they confessed and showed their deeds. Those who did respond. And that is consistent with a kingdom message. So with this in mind, we'd be hard-pressed to conclude that Paul preached anything other than the kingdom message to the Ephesians. And, and again, that's not to say that he didn't also preach the others, just the text does not say that he did. 
Gentiles were present and they accepted the message. But again, we see no indicator from the text that he went into the grace message with them. So we have to assume that during this unique time of overlap that both were still effectual. That's a fancy word, which means they were both still working. <laughs> they were both offered. You still had Jews and even Gentiles proselytizing over into Judaism under the kingdom message. And you had Jews and Gentiles um, into the body of Christ. Uh, Randy also offers some of possible scenarios that I found interesting. Paul only preached the kingdom message, and later Timotheus, Timothy followed up with it. Because you remember from 1 Timothy, where's Timothy? He abode still in Ephesus as Paul went on to Macedonia. So maybe Timothy clarified after Paul moved on. Or Paul did preach both messages, but only the kingdom is emphasized in the text. Uh, either way, today, most mix the two anyway and naturally see no point to our discussion right now. In, in other words, they think I'm just making much ado out of nothing, uh, but I'm not. Uh, I believe very strongly, and I've been on this journey. Uh, I know Scott's been on this journey. Uh, and many others, that there is a difference between the kingdom message, which was to the Jew, and the grace message, which was to the Jew and the Gentile after the kingdom was off the table. Now notice in verse 11, and God wrote, there it is, special miracles <laughs> by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were, were, so that from his body were brought unto the sick, handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them and evil spirits went out of them. Again, these verses indicate a kingdom message, which was always um, precursor, if you would, by a sign. Uh, the signs, the miracles were performed and then the kingdom message was proclaimed. Why? Because the Jews demand a sign. Uh, and of course, the signs were so that the Jews would believe. Signs have nothing to do with the Gentiles. It is also obvious that later on, Paul did not have the ability to perform miracles. They were temporary because they were part of the kingdom message. I mean, we know that Paul was able to perform them up until at least Acts 28. You remember on Acts 28, he, he, he shipwrecked on the island of Melita. And there was these people there that, that they built a fire and a snake came out and it bit Paul. And everybody was looking at Paul like he was guilty of something and this snake was going to kill him. But he just shook it off its hand, his hand uh, into the fire. He felt no harm. Um, and they were watching him, watching for him to fall over and die. And he didn't. And then he healed Publius and some of his men. Uh, from some kind of fever and bloody flux. So Paul was still performing miracles all the way to the end of Acts 28. Um, but of course, when he arrived in Rome, that's when he penned the prison epistles with new revelations in regard to the body of Christ, all of those prison epistles. And afterward, we so see no miracles from Paul. It's interesting that on the same island of Malta, Peter, I mean, Paul was not able to heal Trophimus later. 
So his first time through, he was able to heal Publius and all of these men. He was bit by a snake. He didn't die. But then we end up over in 2 Timothy 4.20, Trophimus have I left in Miletum sick. I am of the opinion now, haven't always been, that the sign gifts associated with the kingdom message are no longer available. They ceased with the rejection of the kingdom. And the next time we see these gifts uh, will be Daniel's 70th week after the church is raptured. Uh, they're, they're not for the church. They're for the Jews. Signs are for the Jews. Jews seek sign. The Greeks demand wisdom. Now, the Bible does foretell of false signs that will accompany apostasy in the latter days. I think that's what we're looking at <laughs> today. I mean, I know that's, that's a hard one to settle on since many today swear by them. I can only include their mistaken and overcome with emotion. And I know, and probably you've been in a lot of services, where there's a lot of emotionalism going on. Emotionalism, we have to be careful. You know, the Bible warns about uh, sensuality. Understand, um, you know, the five senses. Eve's eyes were not open until after she had sinned. And um, I, I can't remember if it was Paul, talks about how that sensual, demonic, I mean, how we live by our senses. When you live by your senses, you're living after the flesh. And I'm afraid that's what's going on a lot. We're... There's a lot of sensuality happening in the church today. Uh, when you start turning off the lights and lighting the candles and gently rocking to and fro and trying to whip up the spirit, I'm sorry, I believe a lot of that, most of that, probably all of that. It may be misplaced, it may be in all innocence, but I believe that it is an attempt to stir up flesh uh, trust me, the Holy Spirit can move with the lights on. I've seen it before. Okay, He can move with the lights on. What we need in the church today is not an experience. Matter of fact, a lot of churches today call their services experiences. That's sensual, my friend. Okay, We don't need an experience. We need to learn how to rightly divide the word of truth. We need to learn how to rightly divide the word of truth because, to be honest, nobody cares how you feel because your feelings do not determine truth. And you ask the average young person today about something, well, I feel. It doesn't matter how you feel. What does the word of God say? You know? Um, so anyway, I'm done with that. Every head bowed, every eye closed. But uh, notice verse 13 then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jew, and a chief priest which did so. Now we're introduced to some Jews that apparently specialized in exorcisms. And when they did, they did so by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, among these were the seven sons of Sceva. Sceva was the chief priest there in Ephesus. So this would have made him a member of the local ruling body, Sanhedrin, there. One teacher puts it this way. They were not evil men. They were just ignorant of what they were getting themselves involved in. Their father was a chief priest, and they all wanted to serve the Lord with what little knowledge they had. And isn't that the truth? 
We want to serve the Lord with what knowledge we have. They no doubt had heard that Paul was casting out demons in the name of Jesus and perhaps thought it might work for them. But they were missing what Paul had. They did not know. Um, they were not. They were not walking in the same salvation that Paul was walking in. They were not walking in the same apostolic authority that Paul was walking in. Uh, they did not know that being a Jew like Paul was not enough. They did not know the Jesus that was that Paul was preaching. So they did not have any authority to call upon his name. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But who are you? Now, I can't help but think at that point, a little bit of fear came up uh, because he's saying, I don't know who you are. Now, a demon is speaking to them. Um and notice it, the word, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know. That's the word gnosko, uh, which speaks of an intimate knowledge. In other words, I know these guys, but I don't know who you are. And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, that didn't end well. Um Unusual strength seems to be the order of day with evil spirits. Um, Mark 9, it talks about this unusual strength. Uh, they, they said that uh, he takes my child and he throws him into the fire. Um, uh, so, you know, this is the one that the disciples tried to cast out and they were not able to do so. Uh, so we see this unusual strength. Then over in Mark 5, uh, when when we're in the, the country of the Gadarenes, uh, it says that there was a man roaming around in the tombs with an unclean spirit, and no man could bind him, no, not even with chains. And when he was bound with chains and fetters, the chains had been plucked, plucked asunder by him, and fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. So the word wounded is also interesting here. The word wounded... Um, is actually uh, the word traumatized. <laughs> uh, it literally means to be traumatized. Uh, in verse uh, 16, right here, where it says they were wounded, and the, it says here that they were literally traumatized. Uh, they were traumatized as a result of this event. Uh, Les Feldick, who I really enjoy, I, I listen to Les Feldick probably every single day, uh, Les, to me, is more of a Chuck Smith in many ways. Uh, he really does a lot of survey-style uh, teaching. He's also a contemporary of Chuck. If you watch his videos, you can tell that very quickly when you... <laughs> they're quite aged. Um, but he points out that Paul never addressed the issue of demonic possession. Therefore, anything that we have that deals with the issue of demonic possession comes from the 12, which were dealing with a kingdom gospel. Um, therefore, Les feels that the only answer to, quote, demonic possession today is salvation, not throwing ho uh, holy water on them or chaining them to a bed or nagging the demon out of them for months on end. So just pretty interesting there. If you look at how Paul and how Jesus cast out demons, they spoke a word and that was the end of it. 
Um, then verse 17, And this was known to all the Jews and the Greeks also dwelt at Ephesus, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So again, Paul's ministry, the word of the Lord was magnified as a result of these miracles that Paul was performing, and many believed and came and confessed and showed their deeds. Um, again, this verse suggests a kingdom response here. Notice that it says they showed their deeds. Uh, this literally means that they disclosed their deeds or openly confessed their deeds. Um, there in 18, from the NAS says, they came, con kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. Uh, which makes sense because in verse 19, many of them which also use curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men and they counted the price of them and found at 50,000 pieces of silver so mightily grew the word of the Lord and prevailed. So many who believe confessed to using curious arts, which goes with the way the NAS says their practices there. In context, the word is referring to magic and all the accoutrements that are associated with that magic. Uh, historically, I looked this up, the city of Ephesus was ate up with magic. It was ate up with sorcery. History paints a picture of Ephesus as full of paganism and mysticism. Um, one uh, page said, Magic scrolls, rings, amulets, bracelets, and necklaces thought to have powers were very common in ancient Ephesus. The price of these magical documents and trinkets varied but history tells us that they were a huge market for them in the commercial agora, which is market. And altogether, it was about 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, you're talking about putting your money where your mouth was. And, of course, this is going to cause problems because Diana, the worship of Diana was here. So you've got all these people turning away uh, from this these curious arts, this witchery, this sorcery, uh, which is idolatry. Uh, because Idolatry is putting something ahead of God. So if you're reading your, your astrology or you're reading tarot cards or you're getting your hands read, you're putting something ahead of God. And uh, they're repenting of this. And uh, remember, these are kingdom believers, and the law prohibited any association with witchcraft. Um and then notice in verse 21, And after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit that he passed through Macedonia and Achaia, and then go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So now we see Paul getting ready to go to Rome, where he'll end up being in prison and write the prison epistles. So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a season. So now Paul feels he needs to go through Macedonia and Achaia, Jerusalem, and finally make his way to Rome. This would complete his third missionary journey. And I believe that Paul felt that as to the Gentiles, Rome was the golden apple. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. That's where he needed to know. Um, as I was thinking through this, I find it interesting that the devil wants us to believe that Peter founded the church at Rome thus thoroughly conflating and mixing the kingdom and the grace gospels and diminishing the role of Paul. And that's exactly what's happened today through the Roman Catholic Church. The devil's in the details. Historically, we have no proof that Peter did that at all or that Peter even went there. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, not Peter. 
and Peter would not have went to Rome and preached to the Gentiles. Uh, Peter never did that. Had he went there, he would have sought Jews and taught a kingdom gospel. So Satan has been trying to mix the two programs and cause division and confusion for a long time. And notice at the end of verse 22 that it says he sent Timotheus or Timothy and Erastus ahead while he tarried in Jerusalem or in Ephesus. And the same time there arose no small stir about the way or that way. I believe that the way or that way is always a reference to the kingdom program. You remember Jesus came teaching, I am the way. And those who embraced the message of Jesus, which was a messianic, which was a kingdom message, followed the way. In Acts 9-2, and desired him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way. And now we see the word that way. Okay. Again, therefore, it is nothing to do with the Pauline gospel of grace. Verse 24, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. Now, Diana was the Greek goddess Artemis. She was thought to be the daughter of Zeus, the twin sister of Apollo. Orion was who she loved. She was worshipped as one of the primary goddesses of childbirth and midwifery. Uh, her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven, seven wonders of the world at the time. Many connect her to Semiramis. And if you've ever studied Semiramis and Tammuz and Nimrod and all of that, that would be a great study one day. Um, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. So obviously his motivation had everything to do with mammon, with money. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands, and that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all of Asia and the world worshipeth. So again, there's no doubt that this guy is first and foremost acting out of self-preservation. But who would care about that? So therefore, he makes the whole issue about the great goddess Diana. Um, notice verse 28. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath, and they cried out. Great is Diana of the Ephesians, and the whole city was filled with confusion, and having caught Gaius, or Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater, and when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. So things were getting ugly again for Paul. Uh, and certain of the chief of Asia, which were of his friends, sent unto him, desiring that he would not adventure himself into the theater. So uh, Albert Barnes, who I really enjoy as a commentator on the eSword app, uh, his commentary is free because it's in public domain. Um, he says... Uh, these chiefs, they were persons who presided over sacred things and over the public games. Uh, it was their business to see that the proper services of religion were observed and that proper honor was rendered to the Roman emperor and the public festivals at the games. They were annually elected. Their election was confirmed at Rome before it was to be valid. Probably they were assembled on the occasion right now and during their remaining, uh, they, they, during their time there, they heard Paul preach and they were friendly. 
to his views and his doctrines. It doesn't mean that they converted or anything. There's no indication from the text there. But, I mean, I've got unsaved people who think highly of me that I think would help me. And that's what was happening here. Some, therefore, cried one thing and some another, and the assembly was confused. Um, And the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. They didn't even know why they were there. They were just getting whipped up into a frenzy. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander beckoned with the hand. That's how they uh, told the audience they they wanted to speak and would have made his defense. But when they knew that he was a Jew, uh, all with one voice for about the space of two hours, cried out, Great is Diana the Fusion. So for two hours, these people were screaming, defund the police. I mean, uh, they were screaming, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So (laughs) Alexander, whoever he was, he was prepared to speak on behalf of the Jews. Now, some associate him with Alexander the coppersmith, which would make sense because in Ephesus, they were smiths that were making these idols. Um, But Alexander the coppersmith, you remember in 1 Timothy 1.20, He delivered to Satan that he may learn not to blaspheme. Um, It it would make sense that a Jew would be asked to defend what was going on because Paul's kingdom message was to and about them. But nobody wanted to hear it. He wasn't even allowed to speak. And even even if he had spoken, we don't know what he would have said about Paul. Uh, He may have thrown him under the bus. I mean, we don't know based on... Uh, what we see here in First Timothy, you know, he, he probably was not going to be friendly toward him. And when the town clerk had appeased the people, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana and the image which fell down from Jupiter? So now the town clerk, voice of reason, uh, says he's trying to calm the situation. And he's basically reminding them that this image fell down from Jupiter. There's this little rabble-rousing group of Jews here aren't going to have any negative effect on that. Of course, time proved him wrong. <laughs> we know that. Uh, the word worshiper here in this verse, uh, when it says that the town clerk who was a worshiper, it literally means that he was the temple keeper. Um, David Gusick points out at this point that what was going on in Ephesus was a result of Paul's teaching that did not please the devil at all, and it may have been why he spoke of spiritual warfare writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 10 through 20, uh, when he says, Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, and put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and darkness of the world after spiritual wickedness in high places. Uh, so no wonder that Paul would have written to the Ephesians in regards to spiritual warfare. And again, when the devil's at work, when God is at work, the devil gets busy. Um, I'm convinced that the devil doesn't care about what happens in most churches today uh, because there's nothing happening. <laughs> There's nothing going on that's a threat to him in most churches today. Uh, most churches today are in uh, are in uh, will worship. Uh, they are uh, in the flesh. They're carnal. Um, 
They're not rightly dividing the word of truth. They're not being taught the word of God, so they don't know the plays. So they can't execute them even if they wanted to. Uh, and all you got to do is walk up to somebody today that, and ask them a few simple questions, and you'll see they don't know the word of God. Um, so the devil doesn't bother with it. But, you know, like I learned a long time ago when I played football, nobody tackles the water boy. Uh, nobody tackles the coaches. You know, they tackle the guy on the field with the ball, period. You get the ball, the devil's going to come after you because it's the guy with the ball that can do the most damage. And when you pick up the ball and you run with the Lord, the devil's going to come after you. You're going to lose friends. You're going to get people that don't want to have anything to do with you. You're a religious fanatic. Well, you know what a fan is. That's somebody that loves Jesus more than you do, a fanatic. (laughs) Yeah, I want to be a fanatic for Jesus. And if you don't want to come along for that ride, fine. You know, but if you pick up the ball and you get busy, the devil's going to come. It's a sure way of knowing that you're doing something for the Lord. Well, God bless you guys. That's my study for today. I appreciate you being with me. Those of you that hung in there, I know it's Sunday morning. I, If having this earlier would work better for you guys, I mean, let me know. I mean, if you want to do it earlier than nine, uh, I'm open to that. I'm an early, early riser. Um, so if that works better for you, uh, but either way, you know, I'm going to take the notes, put it on the blog. I'm going to take the the video, put it on YouTube and I'm going to put the audio and put it on SoundCloud. So check it all out there and, um, God bless you guys. I encourage you to just keep rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, question assumptions, um, just because it's assumed doesn't mean it's true. It's just like the old saying life uh, perspective, or is, is that a perspective is reality? Um, no, it's not. <laughs> perspective is just perspective. I mean, it doesn't make it reality. Um, but sometimes we're looking at things through the wrong lens. And I have become convinced that we have been looking at, uh, the book of, of Acts, especially through the wrong lens. Well, God bless you guys. And I'll see you Tuesday morning at 6.30. We'll continue our study.